Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. We gather every Sunday at 9.30 and 11 o'clock and would love for you to join us. If we can do anything for you at all, please email us at hello at cornerstonetulsa.org. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. All right, the teaching text for today is Jeremiah 12, 1 through 5. Uh, It's on page 1097 in your Bible, in case you don't know where Jeremiah is. And we'll read this aloud together. You are always righteous, Lord, when I bring a case before you. Yet I would speak with you about your justice. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the faithless live at ease? You have planted them, and they have taken root. They grow and bear fruit. You are always on their lips, but far from their hearts. And yet you know me, Lord. You see me and test my thoughts about you. Drag them off like sheep to be butchered. Set them apart for the day of slaughter. How long will the land lie parched and the grass in every field be withered? Because those who live in it are wicked, the animals and birds have perished. Moreover, the people are saying, he will not see what happens to us. So this has been Jeremiah's complaint, and then God responds, if you've raced with men on foot and they have worn you out, how can you compete with horses? If you stumble in safe country, how will you manage in the thickets by the Jordan? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that uh, we're confident that it's alive and active, that it's sharper than a double-edged sword. Use your word to cut us open, to bring comfort, and to bring challenge. Help us to more faithfully be a community shaped by the gospel to join you in the renewal of all things. We ask for your help and your insight. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. There's a proverb that says, uh, the wounds of a friend are better than the kisses of an enemy. I would rather be, personally, I would rather be kissed than stabbed, but I wonder if anybody in the room disagrees. The wounds of a friend are better than the kisses of an enemy. I think about the proverb and numerous wounds over the years come to mind of ones I've received from friends. Uh, One of them, I was 11 years old, and I went to children's camp with my church, and we were in Turner Falls, Oklahoma, beautiful Turner Falls, Oklahoma. And I guess my church didn't have a children's pastor at the time because the youth pastor came and Randy Ayers. And Randy was in a like a cabin with 15 of us. And we were very sweaty and very like, like we were loud, like annoying, obnoxious kids. And probably by like Thursday or Friday of camp, like we had taken Randy to the very edge of his sanity. And I remember exactly where we were at the Turner Fall campgrounds. And a group of us were following Randy and getting on his nerves. And he turned around and he goes, be a leader, John Odom. It's like, Gosh, I'm 11 years old here. I'm going to tell my parents you called me to be a leader. It really hurt my feelings. But it stuck with me. I wonder, why did he say that to me? And why didn't he say that to the other doofuses that I was friends with? You go forward 10 years, and I was working for Ben's dad, John Kilgore, a very, very sweet man, uh, not a guy who loved confrontation. And so I now know that On one day when I was working for him at Kilgore Landscape Design, that it must have cost a lot for him personally to confront me, because one day after work, he asked me to stay behind, and he said, John, I just just need to talk to you about some things, and 
He said, uh, he said, you don't work nearly as hard as the other guys. <laughs> we really like having you on the team. You're so nice, but you don't go after it like the rest of them. And he felt so guilty. He hugged me a lot and told me that he loved me. It's like, ugh, another wound. Thank you, John Kilgore. Four years after that, I was, uh, I was working at Asbury on staff. I was sharing an office with Todd and our friend Spencer. Uh, Todd was the short one. I was the tall one. Spencer was the bald one. And Spencer had a, has a very distinct personality. He's grown a lot. God bless him. But one day, the three of us were sitting in the office, and Spencer was agitated with me because I was being uh, indecisive about some, uh, a leadership like thing that we needed to do. Spencer said, I wish you'd just quit hemming and hawing around on everything. You're so hesitant. Either lead or get out of the way and let somebody else lead. It's like, oh, <laughs> does nobody like me? Uh, John Lawrence, who is a part of Cornerstone, was in the room when that happened. And I remember John just kind of quietly... <laughs> like shrieking out of the room. Each of these people, Randy and John and Spencer, gave me a wound. And they didn't do it to hurt me. They did it, each of them, because in one way or another, they saw something in me that was unrealized. They saw strength, or they saw leadership, or they saw decisiveness, a capacity for it that was unrealized. And I'm just, my bent toward the world is I just want to keep the peace. I want people to get along at my most average. I will, I will do anything just to preserve the artifice of harmony. Let's at least pretend like we're getting along. And with each of these guys, they, they sacrificed the artificial harmony in the interest of giving me a wound, but a wound that could make me well, a wound that could actually help me and assist me in life. And that was really their goal. They gave me the kind of wound that's better than the kiss you can get from an enemy. And in Jeremiah chapter 12, God is dealing Jeremiah a kind of wound that's better than the kisses of an enemy by giving him uh, this, this reaction to his complaint that's not quite what he was hoping for, a reaction that was calling him to his strength, an invitation to live into his potential, to fully realize who he could be as a child of God. Jeremiah was a prophet. And I don't know if you're reading along in the, in the uh, year of the Bible, so maybe you've seen the introduction video, but Jeremiah was a prophet to Israel and to Judah. Uh, the, the whole tribes of Israel, the 12, had been united under David's monarchy. And after he died, they split uh, to the north. Most of them were in the north, called Israel, and the south was called Judah. And Jeremiah was speaking these edicts from God toward the people, these words of warning and caution. They had committed overt idolatry, having sex with these shrine prostitutes and worshiping rival other deities. They were even sacrificing their children to this god called Molech, who was an abomination. And God was jealous for the people that he'd made his own. And so he sent prophets, Jeremiah, one of them. And Jeremiah was, was to deliver a harsh word of warning. The clock is kind of ticking down. There are opportunities to change, to repent are, are narrowing, and if they don't change, exile's coming. God's going to send armies. He ultimately sent Assyria in 722, and then Babylon in the year 587, where they were going to wipe out the culture of Israel and Judah and send them to a foreign land. Jeremiah was the mouthpiece, both of God's judgment, but also of God's hope, an opportunity for them to be saved. Jeremiah was sent to deal them a wound in the long-term interest of their salvation. 
In Jeremiah chapter 1, which we didn't read, we hear Jeremiah's call to ministry, the moment where God grabs his attention. Uh, in, in Jeremiah 1, it says, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. And Jeremiah responds, Alas, sovereign, sovereign Lord, I said, I don't know how to speak. I'm too young. But the Lord said to me, Don't say I'm too young. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Don't be afraid of them, for I am with you and I will rescue you. Mentally bookmark that phrase. Declares the Lord. The Lord reached out his hand and he touched my mouth and said to me, I have put my words in your mouth. So today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and to tear down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. And at the end of this chapter, God says, get yourself ready. Stand up and say to them whatever I command you. Don't be terrified by them or I will terrify you before them. Today I have made you a fortified city, an iron pillar, a bronze wall to stand against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, priests, the people. They will fight against you, but they will not overcome you. And then he says the phrase again, for I am with you and I will rescue you, declares the Lord. God gave Jeremiah three gifts in these passages that we've just read in his call story in Jeremiah chapter 1. He gave him three gifts by answering three core questions, questions that each of us need answers to to, to make it as a human being because life is hard. Uh, three questions, who am I, what am I here to do, and how will I make it? This is an, the first question is an identity question. Who am I? And mentally picture, what did God say to Jeremiah? He said, you're one that I have known and called from before you were even in your mother's womb, one who had been on God's radar from eternity past. I've made you to be a prophet to the nations. God's given him a unique identity, an office to hold as a prophet to, to Israel and to Judah. And then finally, he uses these three images of strength to describe Jeremiah. Jeremiah, who we already know to be somewhat of an insecure dude, he said, I'm too young, I can't do this job. He said, I have made you to be a fortified city. I've made you to be an iron pillar. I've made you to be a bronze wall. Images of strength. God gives him the, the gift of telling him who he is, his identity, a prophet, one called before his birth, and then a bastion of strength. What is his purpose? The answering that question, what am I here to do? You're here to speak every word that I give you. You're going to get opposition in the process, but you're to be my mouthpiece. I'm going to whisper it in your ear, and then you declare it before the masses. You're my prophet. And he gives these images of, of you're going to uproot and you're going to build up. You're going to destroy, you're going to overthrow, you're going to build, and you're going to plant. He gives this image of you're going to do this destructive work and then reconstruction to do work of challenge, but also a word of comfort, a word of judgment, but also a word of grace. This is your purpose, Jeremiah. And then finally, he gives them this promise. We all wonder, man, do I have it in me? How am I going to make it? Twice he echoes this promise. Whatever you do, I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to rescue you. Quite frankly, the rescue part is slightly foreboding. It's like, well, what am I going to do that's going to need all the rescue? Twice he says, I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to rescue you. And so between chapters 1 and 12, Jeremiah begins this prophetic ministry where he's sharing fairly unpopular sermons with the people, this invitation to repent. 
And, I, and Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet because the messages that God gave him to deliver were really, really hard. It's like John Kilgore giving to me the message of, you're not a very good employee. It killed him in the process. Jeremiah wept with the weight of the message that he was entrusted with delivering to the people. If you struggled in reading Jeremiah, Jeremiah struggled in speaking the words of Jeremiah. As the, as the masses are, are really unhappy with him because he's calling them to repent, it really hits an apex in chapter 11 where it says, stop prophesying in God's name or we'll kill you. This is what the people are saying to him. And then in Jeremiah chapter 12, which we read aloud together, and we're going to cover it again so we can track with all of it, Jeremiah begins to respond to God. So this is what he says. He's, he's groaning about how difficult it is to be him. You're always righteous, Lord, when I bring a case before you, but I want to talk with you about your justice. He's like, God, I'm sure that you're not in the wrong about this, but this seems slightly unfair to me. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do the faithless live at ease? You've planted them. They take root. They grow. They bear fruit. You're always on their lips, but far from their hearts. Like, look, the bad guys are getting off so easy, and I'm having a really difficult time here. Then the next one, he continues, yet you know me, Lord. You see me. I'm the good guy here. Test my thoughts about you. Be a good pal and drag them off like sheep to be slaughtered, to be butchered. Set them apart for the day of slaughter. How long will it go on like this? And he's whining and he's complaining. Things aren't fair for me. And the ambulance is going on and everybody can hear it. And I think, like, for Jeremiah, what kind of response was he expecting from God? He's complaining about how unfair the whole situation was. What kind of response do you think he was hoping for? Oh, there, there, Jeremiah. Let me take care of this for you. Was he hoping for empathy, validation? God's, like, echoing his words back to him. So you're saying that ministry is really hard right now, and you'd like me to lop off the heads of your enemies. I totally understand. That's very valid. But rather than responding with a message of comfort, in verse 5, God responds with a message of challenge. Did you notice what God said? If you've raced with men on foot and they've worn you out, how can you compete with horses? If you stumble in the safe country, how will you manage in the thickets by the Jordan? And God gives this non-anxious but kind of put-off response to Jeremiah where he's like, look, is that all you've got in you? This is child's play. You are capable of so much more. Jeremiah in this moment is struggling with the difficulty of his purpose and his calling. He's called to be a prophet to the nations, but the nations don't want to hear what he has to say. But God's words of challenge hearken back to other words that God has already said to Jeremiah that should anchor him in the face of difficulty. He already knows his purpose, but the, but the words of his identity. Jeremiah, don't you know that I knew you before you were born? Don't you know that I called you for this work before you were a twinkle in your father's eye? Don't you know that I've made you to be a bastion of strength? I've made you to be a fortified city and an iron pillar and a wall of bronze? Why are you chickening out so easily? And Jeremiah, didn't I promise you that I was going to be with you and that I was going to rescue you? Do you think their plot to kill you was going to go all the way through? No way. I promised you twice. You know who you are, and you know that I'm going to be with you. Why are you chickening out? God recognized Jeremiah's unrealized potential. 
He recognized what Jeremiah couldn't see is that he had strength that had yet to be fully tapped. And he knew that that strength, that potential would not be unlocked by comfort alone. It could only be accessed through challenge. And so God dealt him a wound that could make him well, dealt him a wound that was better than the kisses you could receive from an enemy. You ever heard the quote, the church is not a museum for saints, it's a hospital for sinners? A lot of people attribute it to St. Augustine. It probably came from Dear Abby in all reality. There's no like source on Augustine actually saying it. It reminds us of another phrase by Jesus in, all of the, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels, where Jesus says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And this Dear Abbey quote and this saying from Jesus kind of give us this picture of our mind, give us a metaphorical context for understanding the nature of the church. We think about church as hospital. And when we think about church as hospital, we often associate it with these images of comfort and care. Life is hard. Come and rest. Let God take care of you. Let Him build you up. And definitely Jeremiah started there. Jeremiah, I know you before you were in your mother's womb. I've called you. I see the strength in you, words of grace, words of affirmation, and words of comfort. And undoubtedly, comfort is a necessary aspect of the ministry of the church. Life is really hard. Uh, We need to be friends with other people who are following Jesus and just like lament together. Sometimes things just suck. Sometimes things are very difficult. We just need a hug. We just need comfort. But like a hospital, if we stop at comfort, and comfort ultimately is just minimizing the distress of our symptoms, and if we never move on to addressing the root cause of our problems, which almost always means going through acute peri- short periods of acute pain, whether it's through surgery or through rehab, and if we don't give our attention to bolstering the grit and the, and the resolve to just keep going for the identified patient, that in the long run, a person is actually going to be more harmed and less healthy in the process. If the ministry of the church or if the ministry of a hospital only fo- focused on comfort and not challenge in the long-term goal of health, then we are worse for the wear. Jeremiah was going to God petitioning him for comfort for solace. Just make me feel better. Eliminate the obstacles in my way. And God responded to Jeremiah by calling him to buck up and to get stronger, to toughen up and to face the trouble head on. There's a sociologist uh, who said, there is no correlation between improving one's environment, the the challenges they're facing, the difficulties they're they're facing. There's no correlation between improving one's environment and they're suddenly becoming more mature or responsible. What we most want in life is to avoid pain and difficulty. But in avoiding pain and difficulty, we're also avoiding the opportunity for growth in maturity and responsibility. We don't don't grow mature and strong by being patted on the back, by being comforted, by being told the words that we most want to hear. John, you are a model employee, even though in our minds we know I'm kind of a train wreck. We don't grow by being kept from difficulty. When I was going through a difficult season in high school, my dad wrote me a note, and he said, the steel of greatness is forged in the fire. I found in my life that there seems to be like this gravitational pull toward comfort, where I want more than anything to stay in my comfort zone, 
to keep from being bothered by, you know, the harsh realities about what's really going on in my mind or my heart. I really don't want to face the difficulties of dealing with conflict and problems that, if I work through them, could ultimately lead to intimacy in a relationship. I've got like this gravitational pull that's keeping me uh, in, in place anytime I feel this impulse toward doing something that's right toward doing something proactive, toward doing something to invest in my health or to serve other people. It's like in those moments where I have that impulse toward doing something of a higher nature or a higher order, the universe itself is working against me saying, don't do it or do it tomorrow. That's my favorite one. My motto in life, why do today what you could do tomorrow? These are the forces of gravity or resistance that are perpetually working against me anytime I have that impulse toward doing something that is right, something that is others-oriented, something that is, is of a higher nature. And if you lose that fight with gravity enough, you may begin to believe that you are just lauded in life to be mediocre, that you're fated, you're destined to embrace mediocrity and beigeness and keep your feet forever planted on the ground. This is just certainly what Jeremiah wanted. Jeremiah wanted the elimination of gravity and also hoping to soar to places of greatness in life. But what he didn't realize and what we often fail to realize is it's precisely that resistance, that environmental challenge of gravity that's here to serve as our personal trainer, that's here to equip us to be strong and mature and complete, lacking nothing. These environmental factors that too often that can, can keep us down can also make us strong if we'll let them. Eugene Peterson, who translated the message, a version of the Bible, wrote a million uh, books on pastoral ministry, uh, wrote a book on Jeremiah called Running with Horses. And he had this, a couple of great lines. He said, some people as they grow up become less. As children, they have glorious ideas of who they are and of what life has for them. But 30 years later, we find that they've settled for something grubby and inane. What accounts for the exchange of childhood aspiration to adult anemia? Other people, as they grow up, become more. Life is not an inevitable decline into dullness. For some, it's an ascent into excellence. One of the supreme tasks of the church he says, is to announce to us early and clearly the kind of life into which we can grow, to help us set our sights on what it means to be a complete human being. Not one of us, however, at this moment is complete. In another hour, another day, we will all have changed. We're in the process of becoming either less or more. There are a million chemical and electrical interchanges going on in each of us at this very moment. There are intricate moral decisions and spiritual transactions taking place. What are we becoming? Less or more? To embrace this kind of life, as Peterson describes, of becoming more, of defying gravity, there's a necessary embrace of challenge. To, to live into our potential, we need to not just bemoan the challenges that face us, the gravity that keeps pushing us down. We need to learn to embrace it as part of becoming a whole human being. And in that journey, we need answers to the same questions that Jeremiah uh, dealt with, these questions of identity and purpose and promise. Who am I? 
what am I here to do? What's my purpose? And how am I going to make it? Because today it was really, really hard. Who am I? What am I here to do? How am I going to make it? As you think about these questions, especially in early adulthood, we tend to put a lot of our energy on question number two. And talking with friends of mine who are, who are college students or who are early in their 20s, there's so much stress about question number two. What am I here to do? You've got eighth graders stressed out about what they're going to study, make as their major in college. Like, there's, like everything rides on that clarity right then. We put so much of our energy into that purpose question and give very, very limited attention to the first and the third. Who am I and how am I going to make it in life? And life is challenging for us that if we don't have clarity on the first and the third, but we give all of our energies to the second question, we find that we're just beaten down and discouraged. Or the task of just living as a human being, trying to find a purpose, is so difficult that it just beats the spark out of us and we're left with this bland existence. But what would it be like if instead of dedicating our first energy toward answering that what question, we gave all of our energy into pursuing the who question and the how question, ascertaining from our Father who made us, who knew us before we were in our mother's womb, who He designed for us to be inviting by the, the, by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit that inner assurance that reminds us of who we are and reminds us that we're going to be okay. It's fitting that, that uh, as Jesus gave the Great Commission, He made a comment about identity and purpose and assurance about promise. The identity thing He answered was about Himself. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And me, the authoritative one over heaven and earth, is giving you a purpose. Go, make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. And, and I'm going to be with you in the middle of that. Identity flowing into purpose, being nourished by the promise of God's assurance that I'm going to be with you. We have 50, 60, 70-year-old people who may be incredibly successful or incredibly unsuccessful from the world's perspective, who have no clue on earth who they are. There are people that we think have all the self-assurance in the world who are questioning just like you, what on earth am I here for and who am I? People who achieve great levels of celebrity and, and success, who because of their choices we know they were just as empty as any one of us in the absence of these questions. Everyone who follows Jesus can have an answer to these questions. Man, especially the, that first one, that third one. Every one of us who follows Jesus can have assurance of our identity. On our little baptism bowl that we have over here, it says, With you I am well pleased on the rim. Jesus began, before Jesus did a single miracle in his ministry, he was baptized by his cousin John. The Father spoke these words of blessing and identity over him. Who am I? You are my son that I love. Before you can do anything to impress me, I'm pleased with you. That purpose flowed out of his identity. And the promise of God's presence was proven as it was tested over time through, through triumph and through, through difficulty. Do you know who you are? If you were to answer, the, if you were to be given like a blank pad of paper and just ask the question, who am I? Or who am I in Christ? What would be the answers that would flow from your heart? 
Would you be sitting there at, at Panera with a blank sheet of paper an hour later because you honestly don't know? Maybe you know yourself in terms of your vocation. You've gone to your purpose or your vocation, what you do to give you an identity. Maybe you'd say, well, I'm an engineer, or you would define yourself relationally. Well, I'm so-and-so's little brother or little sister, or I'm so-and-so's dad, but you can't answer for yourself who you are in Christ. If we don't know who we are in Christ, if we don't know who we are, what anchors our identity, we were going, we're going to go to someone else or something else to ground our identity. And no one else can bear the pressure of naming you, of identifying you. That's a gift that we're hardwired as human beings to need to look elsewhere for. And God is calling us to look up. You can know who you are and have an anchored sense of your identity, through whether you're successful or whether you're unsuccessful. There's the general identity given to everyone through baptism by, by placing faith in Jesus Christ. For you, there's one in whom there's no condemnation. You're one who's not the old creation. You're a new creation. And Jesus, you've been adopted into the family of God through faith in Jesus Christ. You've been made the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. You're one in whom the Spirit dwells. Therefore, God's given you not a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. That's who you are. There can be a general sense in which you know as a follower of Jesus, this is true of me. What is said of Paul, what it says of Peter, it also says of me because I've put my faith in Jesus. I've been adopted into his family. I'm a co-heir with Christ of all that God would give me by an inheritance in his kingdom. Who are you? And not only who are you in general as a follower of Jesus, but are you beginning to grow in, in being conversant about who is God made, God made you to be? Jeremiah bore a unique name. He was not human being number 23456. He was Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah. You were made uniquely. You were positioned uniquely in your family of origin, in the city and the town that you were born in. Through your life experience, God has positioned you uniquely. Do you know who you are? When you're going to sleep at night and you think about the day that's to come, do you have the assurance deep down in you, I'm going to be all right? Like, I'm going to be fine. You ever have those moments where you feel like you're overwhelmed by grief or sorrow and someone just puts a hand on your shoulder and said, hey, you're all right. And they have the emotional distance from the anxiety that is plaguing us and we borrow their relaxed, non-anxious presence and it just washes over us. Do you have a deep assurance, hey, you're going to be fine. You, you are so going to be okay. God loves you. He promised He'd be with you. He's got this. Don't be afraid. Don't be overwhelmed. It's one of the most consistent uh, things that God said to people. Don't be afraid. I'm with you. And there's no more secure place of beginning to trudge through the questions of purpose and what am I here to do than from a person who is seated comfortably in the answers to the first and the third question, I knew, know who I am in Jesus. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in me, so I think I'm going to be just fine. Jesus promised that wherever I go, he's going to be with me. I'm going to make it all right in this life. I don't have to be afraid. And if you've got your who and you've got your how, you can endure any what. You can embrace any what, any difficulty with the, with the confidence that God is going to use this to make me stronger. He's uniquely equipped me to do this work. He's with me. He made me. I'm going to be just fine. We see this great comfort and this challenge in one of the keystone verses for those of us who love Jesus from Ephesians chapter 2. It's by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves that is the gift of God, not by works lest anybody should boast. What a word of comfort. 
And no matter what you've done or haven't done, man, God loves you. Jesus laid down his life to rescue you. But there's also a word of challenge and an invitation that follows. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God had a task, a purpose that had been prepared for Jeremiah before he was born. And likewise, as he's shown his grace to you, he's also got a task prepared for you since before you were born. But you can't access that purpose, that what am I here to do, without clarity about your identity of who you are and the assurance that no matter what you do, he's going to be with you in the middle of it. So I want to invite just a couple of moments of reflection and, and prayer before we come to the Lord's table and invite you just in the quiet of your own mind to entertain these questions. And maybe this afternoon, maybe in a quiet time this week, you would think about it your, for yourself. Who am I? What is true of me as a person? If you're a follower of Jesus, you can say, what is true of me as a follower of Jesus? What is true of me in Christ? If you're not following Jesus, if you're not in Christ, in answering that who am I question, you may think about yourself in terms of the crappy stuff that you've done or the shameful secrets that you keep that other people don't know. And so when you, they may applaud you for something else, but you say, but you don't know the real me. That real you can be transformed by faith in Jesus. How would you answer the question, who am I? You ask, ask yourself the question, do I have the assurance that I'm going to make it? Because Jesus is with me. And then flowing out of that, what has he made me to do? What am I here for? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as I think about each of the friends who wounded me, my response to each of them was not gratitude uh, nor joy. Um, I rushed to self-defense. I was angry. I thought of things I didn't like about them in those moments. And yet, in retrospect, I also know like that wound was for my good. And you see us not only as we are, but what, is we, what we can be in Christ. And so there are times where you speak this word of discipline or challenge to us. And it may make us want to run from you like Jonah. Ugh, I knew you were going to say that. But I pray that you would give us the humility, that you give us the courage, that you give us the, the sense of self as being a son or a daughter of Jesus, adopted into the family that we would embrace these words of discipline, not feel an, an insecure knee-jerk to run away from it or distance ourselves from you, but we would embrace your discipline uh, like a son or a daughter. Remember the words of Hebrews, God disciplines those he loves. God, may we embrace your discipline. May we embrace your challenge. And even in the difficulties of life that we bring on ourselves or that are circumstantial as a result of living in a fallen world, would you give us the courage and the discernment to treat this as discipline from you so that we may be mature and complete, lacking nothing? For those of us who flit from thing to thing, looking for an identity, hoping to have a sense of self, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would speak over us the words that were spoken over you at your baptism. You are my son. You're my daughter. I love you. I'm pleased with you. May that be enough. Would you give us the deep assurance in the core of our being, we're going to be fine. We're going to be okay. You are with us. 
You have more invested in us than we do. And flowing out of our assurance of your faithfulness and flowing out of our identity in you, would you give us a clarity and a spirit of adventure in embracing our purpose? What am I here to do? And whether you have a specific calling for us, like, a, like connect the dots, or whether it's a blank canvas, go and have fun and make something beautiful of the world and the opportunities I've given you. I pray that you'd help us to be good stewards of this life. We would honor you, that we would glorify you, and that we as your church would grow healthy humans by challenging and comforting one another in love, becoming all that you've designed for us to be. And all this we pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.